Well, if you're visiting, I'm going to just tell you right up front, we're in the midst of a major capital campaign in our church. It's one of the most important moments in the 50-year history of our church. We're making more room for more boys and girls, for more people to find out about Jesus. Uh, We're building a university in Africa. We're uh, launching a campus on the west side. We're improving this place where we worship. Uh, We're sending out new missionaries. Uh, And the big weekend is the second weekend in November. And one of the things you can tell we want to do is use this as a teachable moment for children. Because churches don't do things like this very often. We haven't done it in over 10 years. And so many of you, this is the one time in the lifetime of your children in your home that you can have this kind of opportunity to teach your kids about sacrifice for the kingdom of God. Uh, One of our grandmothers sent me this email. She brings her three grandkids here to church every weekend, and she gives them each a $1 bill so that when the offering comes by, she can start to teach them the practice of giving to God. Well, recently, one of the grandsons asked if he could have his dollar early, and she gave it to him, and he grabbed one of those little envelopes and wrote $400 on the top. (laughs) And she asked him why he chose that amount, and he went on to say that he's trying to get $400 so that his daddy will buy him a PlayStation and he can play video games at home. He went on to say he had already given his daddy a quarter and two pennies toward this effort. Well, now, Grandma thought this is a teachable moment. So she said, well, that's great. But first we should give to God. Then we worry about other things. To which he asked a very good question. He said, why does God need money? She said, well, God doesn't need money. But God's people need money to take care of this house and to help other people around the world find out about Jesus. To which she said, he looked at his $1 bill and said, well then grandma, shouldn't you be giving me a 5 or a 10? I like that kid. You see, we often refer to children as the hope of tomorrow. But that's only true if children have hope for tomorrow. Because you need greater hope to do greater things. So last weekend we talked about the importance of faith. But what I want you to learn today is there's a strong connection in Scripture between faith and hope. In fact, I'd put it this way. That hope currency determines faith capacity. In other words, your ability to really live by faith depends on how much hope you have in your hope account that living faithfully today is contingent upon the ability to look hopefully at tomorrow. Let me illustrate this way. Back in the 1980s, the Nebraska Cornhuskers won several national championships. They were one of the best teams in the nation year after year. One of the worst teams year after year was the Iowa State Cyclones. And it was the week that Nebraska was going to play Iowa State. And everyone predicted what proved to be over a 40-point blowout. No one was under any illusion Iowa State had a chance. Now, typically in the bookstore at Iowa State, before a big game, they'd put up posters and banners like Kill Kansas or Beat the Bears. But that particular week, they put up one that said, Maintain Dignity Against Nebraska. Well, how are people able to do that? To maintain dignity when life gets really, really hard. How do Christians seem to live above what pulls so many people under? The answer is hope. 
That we live full of hope because we're convinced the tomb is empty. And that changes everything. The Bible says in 1 Peter 1 and verse 3, that praise be to God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ in His great mercy. He's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So we're able to live above what pulls other people under because hope floats. And if that's true, then suddenly what I do today matters because I'm sure about tomorrow. I want you to see that connection. Let me give you an illustration from the other side. Some years ago up in Maine, there was this little town called Flagstaff. And it was in a floodplain that was about to be created into a lake because the state government was going to dam a river and create a lake for the state. Well, this little town was about to be underwater, and they made all the arrangements that you have to do to make that kind of thing happen. So what happened to the people that lived in that little town months before the dam was completed? Simple. They stopped taking care of their town. People stopped doing repairs on the roof. They stopped fixing the fence. They stopped painting the house. They stopped fixing potholes in the road. Why care about something today if it's going to be gone tomorrow? You see, what I believe about tomorrow is going to powerfully impact how I behave today. And so the Bible says you can't live in faith today if you don't have hope for tomorrow. Faith and hope go together. Look at 1 Peter 1.21 a few verses later. Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. We live faithfully today because we live hopefully for tomorrow. Look at Hebrews 11 chapter, uh, chapter 11 verse 1. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. That same verse in another translation says, What is faith? It's the confident assurance that what we hope for is going to happen. I live the way I live now because I am absolutely sure of what's going to happen then. And this is especially true when I'm considering making a sacrifice. If you're going to ask me to make a huge sacrifice of my time, my talent, or my treasure today, then I'm going to have to be persuaded of what's going to happen tomorrow if I make that sacrifice. Now, let me show you a powerful biblical example of this principle. It's in Genesis chapter 22. It's a story of Abraham offering his son Isaac back to God. You remember that Abraham has waited decades for this promised child to be born. It says in verse 1, Sometime later, God tested Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. And then God said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there. As a burnt offering on one of the mountains, I will tell you about. Now, boy's name was Ishak. It means laughter. 
And for some years, this boy has brought laughter into Abraham's tent. He was 100 years old when this child of promise was born. He has ordered his entire life around this boy. And now he's being tested because heaven wants to know if Abraham's hope is in God or in the boy that God gave him. Now Abraham lived in a time when other gods and religions sacrificed children as a show of devotion. This was a common thing. And at this point in the Bible, God had never spoken of his disgust of that practice. So when God says, I want you to sacrifice your son, God's not violating some prior command he'd given to never do such a thing. That's not the problem here. Abraham has already shown himself willing to protest back in chapter 18 when God was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham stood up and said, what if there's righteous people living there? If Abraham isn't sure about how just God's intentions are, he'll say so. He doesn't say so here. Because he knows, just like Job, whatever God gives, he has every right to take back. That's not the problem. The problem is, how can God ask for the child of promise and still keep the promise? What he's got to reconcile is what God says he wants to do to Isaac with what God had said he wants to do through Isaac. So the question is, can Abraham step out in faith today to make an offering that's radical? And what I want you to see is that it was his hope for tomorrow. That guided his faith today. Look at the next three verses with me. Early the next morning. Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. And when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering. He set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants stay here with the donkey While I and the boy go over there. Now here's what I want you to see. Look at these next words. We will worship. And then. We. Will come back. To you. Now catch that. I'm going to go offer my son as a sacrifice. And when I'm done. We're going to come back. These are not words of unconscious prophecy. These are words of unwavering hope. Let the Hebrew writer give you the explanation of this kind of hope. The Bible says in Hebrews eleven nineteen, 19, Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking... He did receive Isaac back from death. Now we know in the Bible there are stories of people being raised from the dead. But not to this point. To this point in biblical history there is no record of anybody ever being raised from the dead. But this old saint reasons God has made a promise. He has told me what tomorrow looks like. And his absolute hope in tomorrow. Enabled him today to make a radical decision 
to sacrifice. See, he reasoned that resurrection, even though he'd never heard of such a thing, was more compatible with the character of God than contradiction. And so he came through this test by faith because of his strong hope that God keeps his promises. And so they went up the mountain. He built an altar. He put his own son on it. He pulled a knife up. And then the word of the Lord spoke and said, Stop. You've proven that your hope is in me, not in the boy. And let's finish the story, verse 15. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you've done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Now, here's why I wanted to read that. Because that is the first time Isaac ever heard God articulate the promise. Now, he's heard his daddy talk about it. He's heard his daddy tell stories of the time he was out under the stars and God said, just like you can't count the stars, just like you can't count the sand, you can't count the descendants I'm going to give you. You can't imagine what I'm going to do through you and your son. He's heard his daddy talk about it, but this is the first time God, Isaac ever heard God talk about it. You see, Abraham didn't just pass the test. He tutored his son. And his unquenchable hope became Isaac's teachable moment. Because here's the thing about hope. It cannot be dispensed until it's first displayed. You cannot pass on hope to the next generation by giving them a book to read. Or a DVD to watch. Hope has got to be illustrated before it's owned. You see, this is critical as I know you and I want to pass on a hope legacy. We want the next generation to do greater things. And we have a powerful opportunity in the midst of this campaign to show our children that we live the way we live today, including making radical sacrifices because of how sure we are that God comes through tomorrow. Because here's what we wanted. We want, don't we, children who are worshipers instead of warriors. I, I read an article recently that reminded me of this principle. man said that he bought a hummingbird feeder because he noticed in the neighborhood there were hummingbirds. And so he put one in his backyard and he and his family were delighted because immediately a bunch of hummingbirds began to feed at that feeder. Sometimes three or four at one time. And they enjoyed watching that. He said, I would have to fill that feeder every single day. 
But then over time, he noticed fewer and fewer birds. He noticed he only had to fill it about once a week, and they discovered why. There was a larger male hummingbird that took over that feeder and made it his private possession. He would fly around above and watch, and if any bird came close, he'd fly down and drive it away. It became his domain, but at a cost. He could never leave the side of that feeder. He, could, he was never free to fly anywhere else or do anything else. He had to live 24-7 worried about his feeder. His possession became his prison. That's what's happening in this culture. We are living in bondage to stuff. And Jesus told us what would happen if we let this happen. You will worry. You will worry. You will worry. You will worry. Now, think with me. Not for four years or 40 years or 400 years. For 4,000 years. People have worshipped God doing this. Why do you think that is? One of the basic messages people have communicated for 4,000 years by holding up empty hands is this. Worshippers cannot be clutchers. See, Abraham's whole life has been a series of learning this lesson. Let go of your home. Let go of your country. Let go of your family. Let go of Lot. Let go of Ishmael. Your own flesh. Let go of your timetable of when the promise should be fulfilled. So when you see this man ascending this mountain, don't see the track of a devastated broken man. See a man on his way to worship. He has learned what worship is. This is the first time the word worship appears in the Old Testament. The first time the word worship appears in the New Testament is in Matthew 2 when wise men from the east come and they bring gold and frankincense and myrrh and say, where's the child? We have come to worship. Worship at its essence is bringing God an offering. It is The willing and joyful sacrifice of myself that springs out of of a heart that is full of hope in God. Isn't that what we want for our children? Do we really want to raise a generation to believe that to be happy you have to have a closet more stuffed with stuff than it is now? Because if that's what we teach them, when life gets hard, they will go under. Because the thing we've told them makes them happy is constantly susceptible to loss. They need hope. And if we're going to teach our kids to hang on, we're going to have to teach them to let go. Because we want them to be worshipers. Not worriers. We want them also to know God as a reality. 
You see, that moment on the mountain was the day the Father's God became real to the Son. That was the day that the God Abraham talked about became the God Isaac knew for himself. And the memory of his father's action and sacrifice did more for Isaac than a thousand sermons could have done. So let me ask you a question. What stories are our kids going to tell their kids when life gets hard about the things they learned about hope when they were kids. Think with me. What stories are our kids going to teach their kids about what they learned from us about hope? One thing's for sure. There are going to be stories about sacrifice. Max Licato in one of his books wrote these words. One of the earliest memories I have of my father was when I was old enough to read and old enough to get bored in church. And I was sitting holding his pocketbook that had a check stub in it and a check ledger. And what I remember is that there were entered a series of checks written to the Andrews Church of Christ. Not just one, but all the way down. One page down the next, down the next, down the next, down the next. Only later would I learn his practice of sitting down the first day of every year and writing 52 contributions. Now money wasn't there. And he wouldn't give all those checks at once. He waited until the dates came by. He post-dated them. But he put those checks in a drawer so that on Sunday morning he wouldn't forget and he wouldn't be tempted not to give. He didn't make a lot of money. I don't know what the amount was. But do you think I caught something? He never sat down and gave me a lecture on being a steward. But he gave me a lesson. I don't remember many sermons when I was little. I do remember getting up on Saturdays and going to mow the churchyard with my daddy. I do remember going up in the evening sometimes and helping him repaint the walls. I do remember every time you walked into his study, the first thing you saw in his check ledger was the check he wrote to the church every single week. Hope dispensed must first be hope displayed. And the best promise we can make our kids is that we're going to live in hope ourselves that God keeps His promise. Because we want our kids to know God as a reality, not just a doctrine. Because we want our children to become living sacrifices. Don't we? See, I want you to realize Abraham could not have gotten Isaac on that altar without Isaac's obedience. Isaac was a grown boy, big enough to carry wood up a mountain. Being a promise kept was not Isaac's choice, but becoming an offering was. And that trip to the altar would alter his life 
forever. Don't we want to teach the next generation to crawl up on altars? Don't we want to teach them to offer their lives to God? The scripture says in Romans 12, 1, that we're all to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. This is your spiritual act of worship. And look at that verse from the message. Isn't this what you want for your children and your grandchildren? Isn't this what you want for them? That they would take your everyday ordinary life and place it before God as an offering. And that they wouldn't become so well adjusted to the culture they just fit it or fit into it. Without even thinking. Instead, they would fix their attention on God. But living sacrifices cannot be produced without giving sacrifices. It's really a simple equation. The next generation will not become living sacrifices unless they see the generation ahead of them giving sacrifices. We've been intentional in trying to include children in this campaign. From the teens doing their garage sale all the way down to the prayer journals we've prepared for the smaller children. We gave all the smaller children a big old milk jug with the greater things emblem on it. We want them on the weekend that we have our campaign to come up here and empty their jugs in the mud. I mean the wheelbarrows in the mud. (laughs) We remember we showed the pictures of what it's going to look like when we remodeled this place. And we mentioned that we're going to put the uh, baptistry down front. Well, three-year-old Mitchell McBroom got really, really, really excited about that. He's Patty Weaver's grandson. Patty sent me this this past week. Every time my three-year-old grandson, Mitchell McBroom, sees change anywhere, his house, his car, or somebody else's, he grabs it up and says, this needs to go into the jar. We're building the baptizer. As he was walking along the sidewalk, Mitchell saw a quarter on the ground. He grabbed it up. He said, oh, look, a quarter. God must have dropped this. He wants me to put it in my baptizer when we get home. (laughs) This past uh, week, Mitchell's grandfather took him out to eat with his business partner. And the business partner asked Mitchell if he was going to buy lunch. Mitchell said, no, all my money's going for the baptizer. That little boy might be just three years old, but he is going to remember that he helped build the baptizer. So is my buddy Alex Brodnick. Come up here, Alex. Alex is a third grader, loves to come to our church. Now, Alex, a few weeks ago, you were given a jug just like that, right? Yes. Tell everybody what you did when you got home. Well, right when I got home from Sunday school, I went to my room and emptied my piggy bank and then put it, all the change in my jar. You put all of your piggy bank, your whole piggy bank in your jug, right? Yes. Then what did you do? Then I went to my neighbor's ha- house and asked for some spare change. <laughs> I like it. And what did your neighbor do? Did he give you some change? Yes, he did. Are you going to go to some more neighbor's houses? Yes, I am. This isn't complicated, folks. Hey, tell everybody real quick. Why do you love to come to this church? I like hearing the stories. You like hearing the stories. Well, let me tell you something, Alex. You are a part of God's story. 
And when you hear about missionaries all over the world, and when you hear about a college in Africa, and when you see people get baptized right over there in that new baptistry, I want you to know something. You helped make that happen, buddy. Thank you, man. Love you. Because if children are to become the hope of tomorrow, we need to show them what hope looks like today. So I want you to bow your heads with me, please. I want us to take a moment and pray for our children. Whether or not you have children or grandchildren that attend this church We have the responsibility to steward the faith of literally over a thousand children here at the hills. We want them to grow up and love God. We want God to be real to them, not just a doctrine. We want some of them to become missionaries and evangelists and servants of God. We want them all to be living sacrifices. Take a moment and pray for our kids. Oh God, we pray for our children. We know that the enemy would do them great harm. He would love to pollute their minds and warp and destroy their faith. You have given us the responsibility to steward them, to raise them, to follow the way of Jesus. Give us wisdom. And passion for this task and this responsibility. They are our treasure. My prayer, God, is that when they grow up to be mighty men and women of God who do greater things, they will be able to say, We saw what it looked like from the generation that raised us. We ask God. For our kids, for their safety, their faith, and their capacity to live and die for Jesus. In His name we ask it. Amen. I, uh, I believe with all my heart the tomb is empty. I think it changes everything. I will not let newscasts or headlines or election results or stock market returns or anything else change how I feel about tomorrow because I believe the tomb is empty. And that's where I put my hope. And I'm going to challenge you, if you have not put your hope fully in the Lord Jesus, you're on a sinking ship. You need to follow Jesus. You need to confess Jesus. If you haven't, you need to be baptized into Jesus. You need to let Jesus be your today and your tomorrow. We're going to sing about it. You can come and express that desire while we stand up.